So Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 37 is our study for today. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, for its guidance for our lives, for it makes all the difference when we know your mind, when we know your will that you spelled out so clearly in your word, makes such a difference in our lives as we seek to follow you, as we seek to love you, as we seek to build into our lives the precepts of your word. Father, help us to understand what it is you want us to see in this passage. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Oscar goes to, you've heard those words many times, the Oscar goes to, and of course it's best actor or best screenplay or best movie. In Mark chapter 7, the Oscar goes to the best pretender, the best hypocrite. Mark quotes Jesus' words in his Mark chapter 7, where Jesus quotes Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. The word hypocrite is an interesting word. It means a play actor a play actor, a pretender, one whose worship is merely outward, but not from the heart. That's the accusation Isaiah was making about the people of Israel, and that is the accusation that Jesus, by using Isaiah's words, is making about the Israelites of his day. What brought that up was verses 1 through 6, uh, 1 through 5 that we looked at last week. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their, fo their food with unclean hands? And Jesus' answer is to quote for them Isaiah chapter 29, and verse 13, they were pretenders in religious life. They were pretenders in their worship of God. They were pretenders instead of those who truly love God. To review what we talked about last week as we began this passage, the Word of God takes precedence over tradition. Tradition is an important word in this passage and I asked you last week to look through it and underline the word tradition the many times it's found in this passage. Tradition, the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the scribes, had 
replace the Word of God. Instead of living out the Word of God, instead of living the Word of God in their daily life, they were instead living out the tradition, the oral tradition of the scribes. Jesus is trying to redirect them to understand that the Word of God takes precedence over tradition. The second thing we see in this passage, and we're going to see more of it this morning, is that moral impurity comes from the heart. Holiness is a matter of the heart, not the hands. Holiness is a matter of the heart, not the hands. True holiness, true spirituality is a matter of inward attitude, not just outward actions. But you see, the Jews of Jesus' day, they were focusing on the outward action. They were focusing on the ritual. They were focusing on the ceremony, the hand-washing, instead of focusing on the Word of God. They were replacing the Word of God with their own human traditions. Jesus is trying to redirect them to understand that true holiness, true spirituality, is a matter of, an, of inward attitude, not just outward actions. Jesus is trying to help them to understand that God requires holiness from the heart. True worship is heart worship. True worship is heart worship based upon and directed by the Word of God. The third thing that Jesus is trying to help them to understand and through them to help us to understand that defilement comes starts in, resides in the heart. And if we are to deal with the sin in our lives, we have to deal with our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, guard your heart for out of it are the issues of life. So often we are trying to deal with the, the sin in our lives, particularly a besetting sin in our lives by taste not, touch not, handle not, when the whole problem is not what we do, the problem is where uh, is in our thinking. The problem is in our heart, the center of our being, the center of our intellect, the center of our will. The problem is in our heart, and we will never touch the sin in our lives until we deal with our hearts. Until we deal with our hearts. Well, Jesus answers their question, by saying, by quoting Isaiah 29, 13, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. In other words, when he prophesied about you pretenders, when he prophesied about you actors, it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You see, it is a heart issue. It is a heart problem. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. That's what tradition is. Tradition is worshiping God supposedly through human traditions, through the traditions of men, through the teachings of men. And not only is it putting aside the Word of God, but it is replacing the Word of God. Their oral tradition, their traditions were replacing the Word of God so that instead of keeping the Word of God, instead of living out the Word of God in their lives, they were replacing the Word of God with their own human ideas. And so Jesus confronts them 
in this passage about that. Calling them pretenders. Calling them actors. They acted not from the heart, but they focused on the outward appearances. The people of Isaiah's day, as the people of Jesus' day, carried out traditions and regulations, but they were heartless hypocrites. They carried out traditions and they carried out regulations, but they were heartless hypocrites. One writer put it this way, to take the case of the legalistic Jew in the time of Jesus, he might hate his fellow man with all his heart, he might be full of envy and jealousy and concealed bitterness and pride, that did not matter so long as he carried out the correct hand washings and observed the correct laws about cleanness and uncleanness. Legalism takes account of a man's outward actions, but it takes no account at all of his inward feelings. He may well be meticulously serving God in outward things and bluntly disobeying God in inward things, and that is hypocrisy. That is hypocrisy. That's what Jesus is putting his finger on in his day as he confronts these religious leaders who are living out the oral tradition, the oral law, living out human tradition, traditions, but not living out the Word of God. In fact, they're replacing the Word of God. Well, as we go on, the point that Jesus is trying to make is that God requires heart worship. God requires heart worship from you and from me, not just outward conformity, True worship, spirituality must come from the heart and be based upon and directed by the Word of God. True worship, true spirituality must come from the heart and be based upon and directed by the Word of God. Jesus goes on in verse 8, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And then he gives them an example of the way they set aside the word of God and follow instead their own traditions. Jesus' emphasis here as we look at this passage his emphasis is the human origin of the traditions. But the question always must be that you and I must ask is this, what does the Word of God say? What does the Word of God say? Not human tradition. Traditions, the oral law, the traditions of men came, Jesus emphasized, out of human origin. But the question always must be what does God say? What does God say? I'd like to illustrate that by sharing a story from the book, And the Word Came with Power. I know uh, some of you, many of you may have read The Word Came with Power by Joanne Shetler. Uh, she and a partner went to a Stone Age tribe in the Philippines, and they lived among the people there. They learned their culture. They learned the language. They reduced the language to writing and then they translated the Word of God into their 
language. Well, uh, it's one of the most fascinating reads. If you're interested in missions at all, that's the book to read. That's the book to read. Well, she shares a story here. She said the, Bo- the Belangios were learning to trust. Slowly they were coming to understand that God's word would give them instructions on how to live. You see, that's what Jesus is trying to convince these people of. If they want instructions on how to live, they have to go to God's word. If you want instructions on how to live, if I want instructions on how to live, we've got to know the word of God, not human tradition. Well, they were coming to understand that God's word would give them instructions on how to live. One time, a group of elders had visited a church in another area which forbade its members to true betel nut. I think I'm saying that right. Anybody know B-E-T-E-L? Betel nut. I think I'm correctly saying that. They came back wondering if they should do the same. In other words, this other group of elders at another church in another village forbade the chewing of the betel nut. And I guess they did it on some kind of biblical grounds. And so these elders come back to the Belangios and they say, well, maybe we should be doing that. Maybe we should be uh, banning betel nut chewing. Well, let me read on here. Betel nut chewing is a custom that acts as a social glue among the mountain people. The exchange of the betel nuts, the lime and the leaves necessary for chewing, is the type of bonding that happens when Belangios meet on the trail, when they sit around and talk at night, when they gather to settle cases, and always at celebrations. Preparing the betel nut chew is part of their lives. Men and women put the lime, some nuts, a certain kind of leaf, and a homemade knife in a pouch that hangs around their neck like a long necklace. They wear it everywhere. When they meet someone on the trail or sit down to chat, out comes the pouch. One person passes around the nuts, another provides the leaves, they share the lime. Then each puts a portion of a nut on a green leaf, sprinkles it with lime, wraps the leaf around it. Ooh, sounds good, doesn't it? Just kidding and pops the bulky wad into his mouth. He chews it well and spits out a thick blood-red substance. Those who chew a lot have red teeth. Outside, they spit the red stuff anywhere. Inside the house, they aim expertly at cracks in the floor or an open window or door, and the pigs and the dogs that sleep under the house are decorated in red. During my first few months in the village, those red splotches startled me. I had to keep reminding myself they weren't blood. When when the Christians came to ask me what I thought about the church forbidding members from chewing, I sent them back to the scripture. You see, the question for us always, according to Jesus, the question for us always, according to the word of God, is what does it say? What does it say? When the Christians came to ask me, Joanne writes, what I thought about the church forbidding members from chewing, I sent them back to Scripture. See what you can find about it in the Bible. They couldn't find anything. So she said, is there anything about gossip in the Bible? There was plenty. Since there was a much bigger problem in Belangio than betel nut chewing, I suggested maybe we should just work on what is clearly forbidden first, then we can go on to the betel nut 
they still haven't gotten to betel nut chewing. You see, that's what happens when we focus on human traditions, when we focus on human rules, when we focus on the exterior, what happens to us is that we become pretenders. We become actors acting out a faith that we don't really feel. Jesus gives an example of how these people set aside the word of God to follow their own tradition. Look at verse 10 with me. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corbin, that is a gift devoted to God, then you, are, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Like that. The example is taken from the fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, 21, verse 17, which underscores the seriousness of the fifth commandment, the responsibility to parents, the responsibility that included adequate financial support and practical care in old age. That was what they were to do based upon the fifth commandment, based upon honoring mother and father. They were, they were to care for their mother, mother and father, give them financial support, give them financial care, practical care in old age. But what the religious leaders did was they replaced the fifth commandment with their oral tradition, which said that if a man would announce as Corbin, as Corbin, and Corbin is the transliteration of a Hebrew word, which literally means a gift dedicated to God. It means something given over to holy purposes. This vow was considered unalterable. In other words, the religious leaders said that instead of taking care of your parents, instead of living out the fifth commandment as you ought to, you can say that the money I would have used to help my parents, the, the uh, finances I would have used to help my parents, the help I would have given to my parents, I dedicate to God. And by doing that, they were negating the very word of God. By doing that, they were negating what God had required of them, and instead they were following their own human traditions. And this wasn't the only area in which they would do that. Verse 13, we read, Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Another area that we've seen where they have nullified the word of God, another area we have seen where they have violated the word of God and replaced their human traditions, replaced the word of God with their human traditions, is that of Sabbath regulations. You can look on your own sometime at chapter 3 and verse 1 where we see how they violated the Sabbath regulations. They distorted and they obscured the Old Testament significance of the Sabbath even as they distorted the Old Testament significance of the fifth 
of the fifth commandment. Well, what happens when you replace human tradition, when you replace human laws, when you replace, uh, use human laws, when you replace the word of God with those things? What happens? Well, this is the progression that happened to the Pharisees. The first step was that they added their tradition to the scriptures. They said it was useful, it was helpful to, sell, to uh, supplement the scripture. And so they would add their traditions to the scripture. The second step in this downward trajectory is that they would place their human traditions on a level with the word of God and give them equal authority. Third step in this trajectory was they began to honor their own oral tradition. They began to honor their own human tradition above the scriptures. They began to supplant the word of God. That is ever what happens when we focus on the exterior rather than the interior, rather than the heart. That is ever what happens when we honor human traditions rather than honoring the word of God. One rabbi went so far as to say this, he who expounds the scripture in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Can you imagine that? Somebody who is to be a defender of the word of God, somebody who is to be a teacher of the word of God, rather says that those who expound the scripture in opposition to human Oral tradition has no share in the world to come. That's an illustration of how far these people had come away from the word of God and away from God. You and I are to be, to be gaining a heart for God, a passion for God. Not, as we said last week, a check-the-box mentality. Not a mentality that focuses on human tradition and sets aside the word of God. We are to be building a heart for God, a passion for God, a love for God. The Talmud said this, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict it, than to contradict Scripture itself. It's a greater offense to contradict the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. Can you imagine how foolish they had become? Can you imagine how foolish they had become? Isaiah talks about that. Can you imagine how foolish they had become? Jesus confronts them about their thinking that they were, instead of following the word of God, instead of keeping the word of God, instead of growing in the word of God, instead of dealing with their hearts, they dealt with tradition, externals, and therefore they set aside the word of God. Well, what are the dangers of this kind of thinking the dangers of this legalistic kind of thinking that replaces the word of God with the word of men. Legalism engenders pride and superiority. Legalism engenders pride and superiority. And by the way, I think I put this, uh, this list in your recap. It really should have gone next week, but 
uh, is such a good list. Number two, legalism produces contempt for other people, brings people under the condemnation of human rules and traditions. Number three, legalism engenders isolation and elitism because it separates Christians from each other. And number four, legalism tends toward hypocrisy, the appearance of holiness without the corresponding reality. Number five, legalism replaces the word of God with man-made rules and traditions. Legalism replaces the word of God with man-made rules and traditions. Number six, legalism produces false spirituality, false worship, false piety. This kind of legalism that arises out of human tradition, it produces all of this. Number seven, the legalist almost never recognizes himself or herself. Number eight, the legalist majors on minors and misses the important things. Majors on minors and misses the important thing. Legalism is man-centered religion with more respect for man-made traditions and rules than for the Word of God. Well, as we go on, verse 14, again Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. What defiles a person morally, Jesus is saying, is the unwashed heart, not the unwashed hands. What defiles a person morally is the unwashed heart, not the unwashed hands. This is a solemn call. A man is not defiled by what he eats, even with unwashed hands. A person is defiled by what he thinks, what he says, what he desires in his heart. No matter how scrupulous he is about outward observance of purity rituals, sin proceeds from within, not from without. That is so important for us to understand. Sin proceeds from inside of us, from our hearts, not from outside of us. Sin proceeds within, not from without. It begins in the thought life. The true intent, for instance, of the law, the clean and unclean foods, was that their disobedience would defile them, not eating the food that they were eating in disobedience. It wasn't the food that defiled them. It was that they were eating in disobedience. Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. You know, people often talk about, now I have often heard people say over the last 35 or 40 years of ministry, oh, if only I had lived in Jesus' day. Oh, if only I could have been walking with Jesus and hearing Jesus and hearing him talk and hearing him teach. And as I thought about that, as I thought about that station, I thought, or that idea, I thought, how dangerous that would be. Think about Jesus turning to you and saying, get thee behind me, Satan. So I think before we say, boy, what it would, how great that would have been, we ought to think about 
how direct Jesus was. And he says here, are you so dull? He says to his disciples. And I wonder how many times he says that to me that I don't get it. That I don't get it. Are you so dull that you don't get, get it? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. And now this is important. Please understand, underline the next section because, or the next verse, because it's going to explain the next section of Mark. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Do you know how astounding that was for his disciples? In saying this, Jesus was declaring all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. There's so much that we could do with and talk about with those, uh, with that list. But this is what I want you to think about before we briefly get into the next section. And that is this. You cannot get to the sin in your life without going through the heart. You cannot, you and I cannot get to the sin in our lives. We cannot deal with the sin in our lives without going through our hearts. Because that's the genesis of the sin. That's the genesis of the sin. Are you still dull, Jesus said? Are you still without understanding? The disciples still did not understand. What is to be desired in your life and in my life is a washed heart, not washed hands. What is to be desired in your life and my life is a washed heart, not a washed hands. One of the first verses I ever learned when I became a believer in Jesus Christ and was told that I should memorize scripture. By the way, they were right. They were right. Uh, I still try to memorize scripture. Kathy is always memorizing. Boy, she puts me to shame. She memorizes whole paragraphs. I'm happy to memorize a verse, you know, and she memorizes whole passages of scripture. But one of the first verses I ever learned was Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the Lord can know the heart, and only the Lord can help us deal with the heart. Now, it's very important to see that the next section of the, of the book of Mark is very much tied to verse 19, the verse I mentioned a moment ago that you should underline. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, that, that is again is an astounding statement. And basically, what the next section of Scripture, verses 24 through 37, it includes two accounts, the account of the Syrophoenician woman and the account of the deaf mute. Both have the same thing to teach, and that's what I want us to see as we get into these two incidences. 
what Mark is trying to show, what Jesus is trying to show by his actions is that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. You know, at that time, Jews would not get along with Gentiles. They would ignore them. They would even go so far as to hate them. And what Jesus is trying to do is open the eyes of his disciples by declaring all foods clean. He was taking a huge barrier between Jew and Gentile away by declaring all foods clean. And what he's basically doing here is declaring Gentiles clean, declaring that the gospel was not just for the Jew alone, the gospel was not just for the Jew only, but the gospel was for Gentiles as well. For in this passage of Scripture, chapter 7, verses 24 through 37, Jesus provides healing in two cases that deal with Gentiles, not Jews. There is some disagreement among expositors over whether the deaf mute was a Gentile or not. Most believe he was a Gentile. The Syrophoenician woman was surely a Gentile. Uh, Matthew, in the parallel passage, calls her a Canaanite, a Canaanite, which is to say she was not a Jew. You see, what this is trying to show us is that the gospel is advancing. It's advancing now. All foods have been declared clean. All people have been declared clean. And Jesus demonstrates that to his disciples by ministering first to this woman and then ministering to this man. Look with me at verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. You see, the reason he didn't want anybody to know it is because he went there to privately instruct his disciples. He did not go there to publicly teach or to have public ministry. He wanted private, alone time with his disciples. There is so much they had to learn before he would be taken from them and at, at the cross and in death and the, before the resurrection and ascension. There's so much that he had to teach them. And so he went there to be with them. Verse 25, in fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. You see what the story is illustrating here. The daughter was demon-possessed. The request, she begged him, that is in Greek, she kept asking. It's an imperfect tense. She kept asking. She fell at his feet fell at Jesus' feet showing deep respect and personal grief. And she says the parallel passage, which we don't have time to turn to, in Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, she says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. You see, there is some recognition in the life of the Syrophoenician woman 
that Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah who would heal people, and she recognized her need, and she trusted Jesus Christ to meet her need. By the way, that's the essence of salvation. When we recognize our need, and we trust Jesus Christ to meet that need, Jesus' response was, uh, at first would seem kind of rude to her, but notice that she doesn't respond to him as if he had treated her rudely. His answer to him, his answer to her, his response to her is Israel had the first offer of the gospel. Others would come, others would come, but it would go to the Jew, Jew first, then to the Gentiles. The contrast in what Jesus is saying to this woman is between the privileged position of Israel and the less privileged position of the Gentiles who here are called little dogs. This is in this instance. Now, there are instances where calling a Gentile a dog was a pejorative, but in this instance, Jesus is not using the word dog in that sense. Well, her reply to Jesus is, Quite so, Lord, and in that case, I may have a crumb. You see, in those days, no forks and no knives and no table napkins were used. They ate with their hands, and then they wiped their hands on chunks of bread and tossed the bread away, and the dogs ate it. She's basically saying the castaways from the, the Jews being reached first with the truth of the word of God, the castaways... Uh, should be available to others, should be available to others. She demonstrated humility and she demonstrated faith. She had seized upon the bread, Jesus, the bread of heaven, and she looked to him by faith. Jesus replied to her, the children, the children are the unbelieving, are unbelieving Israel, the bread is the special privileges, including the first claim on Jesus' ministry. The dogs were little peppy, puppies or household pets. It was a diminutive word. Jesus takes the sting out of it. The meaning was Jesus shouldn't give his ministry to Gentiles, yet because the time of worldwide proclamation of the gospel had not yet come. This is a a foreshadowing that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. The second healing is found in verses 31 through 37. And there we read, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged him to place his hand on the man. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Epitha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Here 
he heals this man who is not only impaired in that he could not hear, and because he could not hear, he could not speak properly because he couldn't hear the words. And uh, uh, Mark is the only one that records this healing. It prefigures the opening of the disciples' ears. It prefigures the opening of the disciples' ears. Again, they are in Gentile territory, and we believe this is a Gentile he is reaching out for, uh, reaching out to. He was deaf. He could hardly talk. Uh, the word there is used in the Septuagint in Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 35 and verse 6, where Isaiah says, the mute tongue will shout for joy. You see, this is once again a foreshadowing of the gospel going out to the world. He could make no intelligent, re intelligible request for himself. And this word, which is used in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 6, describes what Messiah would do. Looking forward to the millennial kingdom, this was already happening in the ministry of Jesus. The saliva was thought to be remedial, and therefore he took him aside, treated him as an individual, wanted personal time with him. Jesus looks up to heaven. That's an attitude of prayer. God the Father was the source of his power, and he sighed deeply, and there's differences of opinion. What, did he, what caused him to sigh? Some believe it was his compassion. Others believe it was the battle with satanic power. Others believe it was at the ravages of sin in the earth and upon the people he had made. We don't know what it is that caused our Savior to sigh. Surely, parts of all three of these, his compassion for human beings, his battle with satanic power, how old that must have gotten for him. And most importantly, the ravages of sin in the earth. When I see some of the horrific things that are done to children these days, when I see some of the horrific things that are done to other human beings, doesn't make me angry with God. It makes me angry with sin. It makes me angry that we, in Adam and Eve, listened and turned away from God's way and brought all this devastation, brought all this sickness, brought all of this death upon the world. I can understand why Jesus would sigh. The effect was instantaneous. Defective speech usually results from defective hearing, and that's also spiritually true. That's also spiritually true. Defective speech results from defective hearing. Muteness usually results from deafness. If our ears are open to listen to the word of the Lord, then our tongues will surely be unloosed in praise and prayer and testimony. Only as the church hears the word of God has it anything to say. Let me say that again. Only as the church hears the word of God has it anything to say. Well, the reference in the last verse to to he has done everything well. They said he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. It's a possible allusion to Isaiah 35, a sign of the messianic activity of Jesus Christ. 
Well, I'll close with this. In the beginning, everything had been good. Man's sin had spoiled it all. And now Jesus was bringing back the beauty of God to the world which man's sin had rendered ugly. And he did it through the ugliest of acts, the death of our Savior on Calvary, taking your place and my place. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you. There's so much here, Lord. There's so much to take in. To be sure that we are following your word and not human tradition. To be sure that we understand that we are, if we are to touch the sin in our lives, it has to begin by building into our hearts your word so that we can get your meaning of, of life and of sin and of service. And Father, help our eyes to be open, our ears to be open, to see you, to hear your voice, and to participate in reaching out to everyone around us with your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.